Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome to Club Book with Victoria Christopher Murray. My name is Stacy Hendren and I'm the manager of the Northtown Library in Blaine, part of the Anoka County Library System. I'm thrilled to be hosting our featured guest and will be your moderator for tonight's event. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that brings her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Anoka County Library is the co-organizer for this evening's talk. Thanks also to a partnership with to partner bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event. Victoria Christopher Murray boasts more than 30 books to her credit and is as versatile as she is prolific. Her writing, <laughs> her writing runs the gamut from contemporary romance to teen novels to short story collections and even Christmas novellas. Many of her titles are available as ebooks and e audiobooks on the library's Libby app. Over the course of her career to date, Murray has received an NAACP Image Award, the Phyllis Wheatley Trailblazer Award for African American Fiction, and nine African American Literary Awards. She is also co-founder of Brown Girl Books, which strives to provide a voice for literary fan favorites while introducing the next generation of authors. Murray's latest is her first foray into historical fiction, co-authored with New York Times best-selling author Marie Benedict. The personal librarian tells the story of banking magnate J.P. Morgan's collection curator. Throughout Beldacosta Green's distinguished career, her Black heritage made it difficult to navigate the racist and classist society of her patrons. NPR lauded, Benedict, who is white, and Murray, who is African-American, do a good job of depicting the tightrope Belle walked and her internal conflict from both sides. 
For more information on the real Belle de Costa Green, I encourage you to visit the library's Gale in, Gale in Context Biography Database. During our conversation, we'll also have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. And if you'd prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can send a private message to Clubbook here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Now, please join me in welcoming tonight's Clubbook author, Victoria Christopher Murray. Hi. Hello, it's so <laughs> excited to have you here tonight. Um, I'm really, really excited to be here. <laughs> and with the time change and everything, we got all together. Uh, on yes, <laughs> we were here on time. Wonderful. So um, loved personal librarian, devoured it in less than two days. You know, had to have, tell everyone to go away because I was reading this one. Wonderful title. As, as a librarian, you know, it's so exciting to have just this role model. Yeah. You know, someone who, and so um, I fell in love with Belle in the first paragraph. She, you say, I long to break into a sprint. My voluminous skirts lifted, my legs flying along the Princeton University pathways. But just as I gather the heavy material, I hear mama's voice, Belle, be a lady at all times. I sigh, a lady would never run. Will you start off by just telling us about Belle and what made her unique in her time? So it made her unique, you know, if, even if she, she didn't have the secret about her family. Um, well, and first of all, I want to thank you for having me. I, I really, really, I was excited to be here. I hope you could tell when we were talking before. I'm very excited. But even if um, Belle didn't have all of this history and all of this baggage in her life, it would have been quite a feat for what she was doing because she was doing this even before women could vote. Uh, but she was carrying a secret. Belle DaCosta Green was born to Richard T. Greener and Genevieve Fleet. She has quite a background because her father, Richard T. Greener, was the first Black man to graduate from Harvard University, but he was an activist. In his time, he was as famous as Frederick Douglass if not more. And if people, if he had had someone to carry on his legacy the way Frederick Douglass did, we would know his name. We, we would definitely know his name more. Um, so she was born of this family, which I think is even more interesting in terms of what she ended up doing. And then she was born, and her mother was part of the Fleet family who had been generations of free Blacks. Um, Richard was the grandson of a slave. But her mother's family had been free for generations, and they were all educated doctors, engineers, teachers, men and women. So she came from this very rich, um, very intelligent, bright, uh, and, and Richard T. Greener was just this great orator, very, very, very famous in his time, which is, is, is amazing that they got away with what they did. But when Belle was between the ages of like 14 and 16, her parents separated. And they separated because while they wanted the same thing for their children, they had different ways of getting there. 
Um, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was overturned by the Supreme Court, which we could have gotten this right a long time ago. But Richard and Richard T. Richard was saying that's okay. Another will keep fighting, and another Civil Rights Act will come along. It did in 1965, but they were long gone. But he was like, we have to keep fighting because we have to keep fighting for our children. She said, we need to give up the fight. And, and there were lots of reasons why she said that. One was when they were in South Carolina, they had to leave under the threat of being lynched. Um, and so there was lots of reasons why she was afraid. She was in the fight, but she said, we did all we could. And now we have to do what we can do. And so what they ended up doing was passing for white. Um, and she wasn't passing for white for privilege or because she wanted to be white. Because when, they, when the family split, when the mother and father split, they were very poor. But they were poor white. And she felt they were much safer that way. And uh, so Belle grew up, not grew up, I can't imagine what it was like for her to be a teenager, to already have a full life as a young black girl. And now she's being told she's something else. Um, and so that's really where the story opens, where it, she's been living as a young white woman for many years. And she gets this amazing opportunity to become the personal librarian for J.P. Morgan. So that's well, a little bit of where she starts. That's so amazing. And it, it, you know, it was really interesting how you delved deep into her feelings and her emotions and kind of that internal dialogue about her mother's choices, her father's choices. Yeah. And like the different experience of her siblings based on yeah. how they looked and where they yeah. grew up. Can you talk a little bit more about that family dynamic? Yes, and you know, Belle was like right in the middle. So I think she had, when the family split and all the children with, her with the mother, I think she, she was right in the middle. She had older sisters who understood. They were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, she and her brother were close to the same age. And then she had a younger sister who never remembered being black. And she, and she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And so she didn't look black to herself and she never remembered that life. And she had older sisters that understood, younger sister who didn't know. And she and her brother who had the darkest skin, which is why mm -hmm. her mother gave her the middle name DaCosta. Um, that was not her name. Her name was Belle Marion Greener. They got rid of the R when they left the father, became just Greens, and she gave the, the son and Belle the middle name DaCosta so that they could claim they had a Portuguese, Portuguese grandmother out there somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but just because people were going to question the, her skin tone. Um, and so she just had this new life, I think she was the one who was really caught in the middle. Like, I, like Teddy had always been white because she was so much younger. And mm -hmm. then the two older sisters were, okay, we're already out in the world and we think mama's right. Mm. 
And wow. Belle's kind of like in the middle saying, I'm 16. She doesn't know if her mother's right. And then she grew into that, still having those same doubts. Oh, wow. So um, like some of the things that we, Belle was very intentional in burning all her letters and yes. burning all her documents. Um, how, can you talk a little bit about like your research process and how you know so much about her yeah. and those feelings. Yeah, because she was very in intentional. She did not want anyone, she didn't know what, the, she died in 1950 and she didn't want anyone to mess up the legacy, everything that she built because she didn't know how the world was gonna change and the way she was living, people didn't accept black people and they would have destroyed the whole Morgan Library. So she not only burned her own personal possession, she asked everyone to burn anything they were in possession uh, that belonged to her. And everybody did that, so there wasn't much, except for Bernard, and we'll talk about him a little later, but he never followed any kind of rules. So <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that in a little while because that, that's a very important point that he did not burn the letters. Uh, so, but there, so because of that, there was not much about her um, available. And this is because when Belle died, she died white. No one discovered until decades later the truth, because the one thing that could never happen was that Belle could never be connected to her father because her father was Richard T. Greener. He was a mm -hmm. black man out there, even though he could have passed for white as well, but he was a black man out there trying to um, get e equality for all people. Um, but in, 19, in the 1980s, during the 80s, a building was being demolished in Chicago. And there were boxes and boxes of papers and someone knew that Richard T. Greener had lived in that building. So they knew who he was. And they gave the papers and boxes, all, all, took it over to the University of Chicago. And it still took decades decades for them to historians to put the pieces together. When they were going through his papers, they weren't looking for a, a wife and children. They were like, oh, this is Richard T. Greener. But then they started seeing some things, some correspondence, because he did try to stay in touch with them, but he knew he couldn't get too close because that would put them in danger. Right. Um, and then they started building it. So it was in 2007 that the first definitive autobiography was written about Bell. Oh, wow. And so we had that one 600 page biography that we read and we that gave us the foundation. But there was a lot of it, like we didn't know what they said and the book is full of dialogue. Right. Uh, but we were able to extrapolate um, the dialogue based on who they were. So for example, what I mean is like, we know that she was interviewed by JP Morgan for the job. That's a fact. Then we know that she was hired. That's a fact. But we don't know what went on in the interview. Mm -hmm. But we can extrapolate what that interview was like because the very first thing was, um, he was a collector of women. He collected them like art. So, and she was attractive for her time. So you can imagine this young woman coming in there. He had to be very, uh, he would look <laughs> at her that way. 
she was this very young careful woman because her mother had them in a box. You don't do this, you don't do that, you do this, you do that. Mm -hmm. And so we can imagine the what that interview was like. She was very reserved. And he's looking her up and down saying, hey, maybe we go to dinner a couple of times. I mean, we didn't do that because it wasn't. So it was very easy. Stacy. it was so easy to do the dialogue through this book. It almost felt like we were there, you know, oh, because wow. we knew so much about her. There's a lot of information about him. And so writing the dialogue became easy. I don't want to... Easy makes it sound like it just flowed, but it kind of did, you know? Mm -hmm. You got to know them so well we got that to you just knew how they'd speak. You And we knew what they were, and we knew that he would at some point be attracted to, to her. And we know that she would have to be have to have been attracted to him. She was attracted to older men. You know, we think there's some daddy issues there. She was attracted to powerful, smart, older men. Oh, wow. Oh, will you tell us a little bit more? You, you mentioned that 600 page book. Can you, yeah. can you tell us more about that research journey? Yeah. Um, were the curators and staff at the JP Morgan library, like helpful? Yeah. Um, and yeah. All of that. Well, you know, what's so funny about that? We didn't ask anybody for any information, any live person, because the one thing is we are writing fiction. And so when you talk to people, they're thinking, um, you know, biography, and they're like, oh, no, that didn't happen, and that didn't happen. And so we <laughs> didn't, but since then, the Morgan Library has been over the moon about this. Um, the book is in the library. Um, we did our, we were selected by Good Morning America as the July book up pick when the book first came out. So we did the actual interview in the Morgan Library with Good Morning oh, America. Wow. I mean, it was so there. So, and it was so funny because we were going, Marie and I were going to the bathroom. And so um, the publicity director for the library was taking us there. And when he got us in the elevator, he's like, you guys are on Good Morning America. So they were so <laughs> excited. They were so excited. Uh, but the research was one of the things that really got me because we read the book. But Stacey, what's so interesting about historical research is that you would think that we would research and research and research for three months and then go writing. That's not what you do because you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. This is what I mean. The very first scene, we, Marie and I wrote every word of this book together. That's one of the things I absolutely loved about it was that we discussed every chapter and if it was a chapter of Belle and her thoughts and things, I would tackle that first. If it was about history and art, Marie would do that. And then we would switch it off so that we, we were still brushing it up with our own things that we wanted to add or take out and talk to each other. And then we edited every sentence together. So every that's why the book is so seamless. But like we had talked about, we were going to open up the book. Um, with her at, at Princeton, because it was very important that she come to J.P. Morgan from Princeton, because mm -hmm. Princeton, the president of Princeton at that time was Woodrow Wilson. And he, that was the only 
Ivy League that had not been integrated. He didn't have any Black people at the college. He didn't even let Black people sweep the floor. So wow. when the fact that she came to J.P. Morgan from Princeton meant she came on a white platter. So we wanted to open up the book at Princeton. So I'm starting to write and she's walking across Princeton and I've been on Princeton's campus, so I know what it looks like. But then I was like, wait a minute, I don't know what Princeton's campus looked like in 1907. Mm -hmm. So now I have to go back and do research and find a picture of Princeton's campus on 1907, in 1907, so that I could write about that. Um, what would she have been wearing? What would she have been wearing, um, you know, to go to work? What were what the, what, what the shoes like? What was, you know, <laughs> would she, if she wouldn't have been in a pantsuit. Um, then the same thing, there was a party that um, she attended at the Vanderbilt's home. So I found an actual floor plan of that mansion. So when I have everybody at the ball and I take you through the rooms, it was exactly all that it was that floor plan. Then, um, so do they like, do you just walk in the door at the Vanderbilt's or, you know? <laughs> so then I did research and found out how that worked what they were wearing. I even looked up what would someone on a wait staff be wearing. I wanted to do the exact thing, not something that was in my head. The funniest part about that part, Stacy, was there was music. And I was like, oh my God, what kind of music? I mean, they didn't have boom boxes. What am I gonna do? And so I had to research the, you know, what kind of music. So more than 50% of the research happens as you're writing. Oh, wow. And so that's why it takes me days to write because I, I will stop at a point and then just start taking notes on, um, okay, this is what the Vanderbilt house looked like. I'll print out a floor plan. I'll look at key rooms that I wanna mention. Then I'll search for pictures of that room. Um, all kinds of things like that. So that's how I love it. I love it. And I love it because as I said, you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Wonderful. Um, I loved the Vanderbilt scene, especially especially when she gets home and starts telling Teddy about what yes. the dresses look like. Yeah. Like, oh, we don't get, just tell me what the dresses look like. Just, yeah. <laughs> <She> was, <laughs> and then she said, your favorite one was a black one, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was, yeah, I, I love the Vanderbilt because I think that was, it's very early in the book. And that's when, I mean, I had done a lot of research to that point. Like when she comes home from Princeton, we mm -hmm. had to, I had to find out, okay, so how long was a train ride? How much did it cost? Did she then go into Grand Central Station or Penn Station? Okay, how would she have gotten from Penn's, from Grand Central Station up to near Columbia University? I mean, all of the, I would, I didn't know, you know, and it was a trolley because she couldn't afford a carriage. Right, all and those little details. All those little details that messed me up because I would have called an Uber, you know? And, and they messed me up. And I think that's one of the things that I love the most about it was just all of, I was challenged because I couldn't mm -hmm. call an Uber. 
I couldn't have somebody pull out, pull out a boom box. Um, I was really challenged when she wanted to get together with her friends and they couldn't pick up a telephone. <laughs> exactly. No um, group messaging. No group. I mean, it's so amazing what we uh, do. I was even surprised at the way she traveled to Europe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And around Europe. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, just thinking Sorry, so, now I'm imagining the book like written, like the same book, but written contemporary. It's like, let's give her, uh, let's put a yeah, boombox and we'll just call an Uber. It makes sense. <laughs> I know, just fix it. It was really interesting because it's almost every scene is researched as you're writing it. Um, because we, like I said, you know, when we're doing research, we're not thinking, okay, we need the floor plan for the Vanderbilt ball, because we're not even, we don't know what the scenes are gonna be. We're just researching who she is and what we're going mm -hmm. to do. Oh, wow. So you touched a little bit about writing, um, the dual writing process with Marie. Can you um, tell us a little bit about how you and Marie met and how kind of the book came to be? How we even got together. So I can't take credit for it, even though I would love to take credit for it. <laughs> I can't take credit for it. It was Marie's idea. Marie is a historical fiction writer, and mm -hmm. she's been writing about women who have been lost in history for a very, very long time. Um, and so when she found out about Belle de Costa Green, she really wanted to write the story. But when she found out that she was Black, Marie said that she there's a lot of things that she could imagine in fiction, but that wasn't one of them. So she always felt like she wanted to write it with a Black author. And so this has been years in, the make, in her head. And then she read one of my novels, Stand Your Ground, which mm -hmm. was selected as a uh, library best book of 2015, I think. And she read the book. And then that's when she called her agent and said, can you find her agent? That's the woman I want. Oh. Uh, isn't that amazing? And so when she first sent me the proposal, I, I wasn't interested at first because the proposal was three pages and the first page was about J.P. Morgan and I couldn't get past that. I didn't want to, I, I was not interested in J.P. Morgan. But then as I got further into it and read about Belle, then I wanted to do it. And the rest truly is history. Um, I had done collaborations before, Marie had not, but we were like sisters as we were oh. working this out. It, it, I always tell people that you need a writing soulmate because mm. not every two writers can write together. You really have to have someone who you trust and they trust you because there are going to be times when you're going to say, no, that doesn't work. And, they, and nobody can take it personally. We're trying to do what's best for the right. book. Right. And best for the best for the the actual character you know that's for that real person yeah 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 so we have to we are the person who we're taking her story and bringing her to life and so my ego can't be in it marie's ego can't be in it we just have to do what is best for the character and for the story oh wow but you both have to understand that Mm hmm. Oh, can you talk a little bit more about just uh, just dual writing in general? Yeah. Um, your experiences. 
Yeah, and you know what's so interesting about it? It really depends on the book. You're not going to, there's no way, like Marie is an attorney, so she wants everything like in flow charts and everything all <laughs> set up. And, and I'm more the kind of person that's laid back. And I'm the person that's saying deadline, they don't really need a deadline. That's just a suggestion. <laughs> that's not a real thing. That's just a suggestion. But um, so that's perfect with us because we're on two different ends of the spectrum. But what is um, so good about the two of us, once we knew that we there, were, there was no ego in this and we were going to do this together, no matter what, as I said, we talked out every chapter first. We said, okay, how do we wanna introduce her? Well, it has to be on print, at Princeton. And we talked about why. And mm -hmm. then we said, okay, so what are we gonna do here? And then depending on what it was, if it was a lot of thought, Bell's thoughts and feelings, um, I would tackle it first. And if it was art and history um, and things like that, Marie would tackle it first, but then we would switch the chapters. We would, I'm sorry about that. We, will, we would switch the chapters and um, then write up our parts. And then when we were doing the editing, then we would, um, we did it every sentence together. Oh, wow. What a great experience. And what, I love that idea of finding your writing soulmates. You have to have a writing soulmate. It's not that you two can just get together. I know people who try to write together and like now hate each other. And so I just think, and it's you can be friends but some you can't write together and people right. have to understand that oh wow i'm going to jump to another question that came from a reader so it says i'm a former resident of astoria i learned about jack growing up not a thing about jp's librarian how much of the library's preservation as an asset of new york city do you attribute to his son and how much to bell so now Jack was really involved in his financial business. In fact, Jack wanted to give away everything or sell the art collection. Mm -hmm. But Belle, from the moment that she started um, working with J.P. Morgan and she realized what his collection was and what it could be, from that very moment, she wanted it to be a public institution. So this is what I want you to imagine. Like I have a collection of books here and you probably have, you have a collection of books there. And <laughs> yeah. so just imagine that it gets too much. You know, you get too many books and you have too much. And so what we do is we start stacking them on the floor. And what JP Morgan did was he bought the lot next door and built a room for them. <laughs> and it's a four room library, but it was private. His collection mm -hmm. was supposed to be private. It was just like some, inviting someone into your library at home or my library at home. He wanted to just show it to his friends. That's it. Mm -hmm. But Bell was the one that said, no, this should be a public institution. Mm -hmm. And so he died in 1913 and it was not public. <clears throat> and she had to push and push and push Jack to make it public. And it wasn't made public until 1924. 
it would not be a public institution without Belle de Costa Green, mm. not at all. And so what's so interesting is that in 2024, it will be the centennial. Oh, wow, yeah. It being, you know, 100 years of public institution. And so they're going to do an entire celebration and they're going to focus on Belle de Costa Green. Oh, fun. Isn't that fun? So I want everybody to go pictures <laughs> and um, because it would not be so JP Morgan, his financial side, because um he that Bell wasn't involved in that, even though he was she was a confidant for him. He saved this economy twice. He was that that was something different, and that was what his father had passed down to him and he passed down to his son. But Jack at first was not interested at all in the art collection. You know, it was just, it was just books in the library to him. You know, yeah. that none of them were taking it as seriously as Belle. Mm, wow. So um, jumping off of, you know, Jack and JP, jumping to the other side, Someone says, I'm really interested in Richard T. Greener. Yes. Especially his time at Howard and USC. Yeah. What, what are your honest impressions of the man? Are there any research tidbits you didn't get to weave into his daughter's story? Oh, yeah. Lots well, good. Great question. And, and they know <laughs> I was, you know, um, as a Black woman, Richard T. Greener's name should be on my lips. It should be on all, it should be as famous as Frederick Douglass, but he died alone. Um, whereas Frederick Douglass's wife made sure that his name continued. Um, lots of things about Richard T. Greener. Um, and then we did weave little things in the, into the story, uh, like he was the son of a of the grandson of a slave and his father abandoned him, abandoned his, him and his mother. And he had a really rough time growing up, very poor, but I can't remember who was in Massachusetts. I think it was in Boston um, where someone saw his gift. They knew that this was a smart young boy. He ended up going to a private school in Harvard. He was just this brilliant man, a brilliant orator, fought like anything, fought like heck for equality, wrote yeah. some fabulous papers. If anybody wants to um, look up who he was, just search for some of his writings. Um, he wrote something in the early 1900s called The White Problem, and he was saying racism doesn't belong to Black people. It belongs to white people because you don't recognize our gifts. And he was listing all the people who, um, all the Black people who had already contributed to this country without even having any support. Um, but he also left his family. And, and that becomes an interesting thing because I always say, did he have a choice? When, as soon as his wife said, um, I'm, we're going to live as white, and she wanted him to come along. Right. I don't know how that would have worked because people knew who he was, but um, he didn't have a choice. I don't think he had a choice because he was so, he was such a fighter for equality. Mm -hmm. And then people say he abandoned the family. Well, once he wasn't going to live with them as white, any interaction he had with them would put them in danger. Right. Because you will live when you were passing, 
you uh-huh. have to totally leave your life behind because you can be um, lynched. You could have been lynched for that wow. life. Um, and so, but he abandoned his family. He and his wife never divorced. He and Genevieve never divorced, even though I think it was President McKinley who sent him over to Russia as an ambassador. And he had a common law wife, a Japanese woman over there, had two children who later on came over to the United States to live with him. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't last very long. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure he knew how to connect. Uh, But he had such an interesting life because he was always fighting for equal rights, became He first went to the University of South Carolina as the librarian, as a professor. They were run out under the darkness of light, of night, um, because once the Civil Rights Act and the the rise of white supremacy, they had to leave, which I think is a thing that just frightened her mother um, to never have to go through something like that. And then um, when he left the family, he ended up going to Howard University, being the dean there, ended up in Russia, um, as I said, as an ambassador, came back here. And then I think he just kind of got lost. He was living with family in Chicago, wasn't living a very big life, wasn't the Richard T. Greener anymore, and um, died pretty much alone. Oh, wow. I love in the book when, when he's at, when they talk about, when you talk about him at South Carolina and it's like, and everything is just perfect and beautiful. It's like, okay, this is, this is a quality, but then then it ends and it ends very scarily. (laughs) Very Uh, scarily. And I think that's one of the best lines. One of the lines I enjoyed most in that book where her mother said, I had to join a group of people who hated me and I hate them, but I did it for you. So don't mess this up. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, she had made a big sacrifice. Mm-hmm. She's like, white people hated me. They ran me out of town under the threat of lynching, but I joined this group to save you. So you better not mess it up. But that was a sad part of the book for me too, though, Stacey, because if there was, that was such a hopeful time. I almost want to one time write a historical fiction of reconstruction, um, because if we had kept that, mm-hmm. it would be a very different country, very right. different. Mm-hmm. And, and most people don't even know about the Civil Rights Act of, eight, of 1875. Mm-hmm. Most people don't even know and don't know that it was overturned by the Supreme Court. Right. It's amazing going back and, you know, as a librarian, I've been doing a lot of reading about that time and going back and being like, wait, we did this and then we wrecked it. And we wrecked and it's it. It's not just that, it's not just that one um, Civil Rights Act. There's so many things where it's like, wait, we did that and then we wrecked it. Yeah. And, and how intentional it is and how it builds part of that um, systemic piece that we have today. Yeah, and it's so sad because we could have gotten it right. Right, so that leads me to um, a question. Um, While this is historical fiction, I feel that the personal librarian is timely. 
And I know you, in um, the acknowledgements, you talk about writing it during 2020 yeah. and that challenge. So what do you, what do you really hope readers take away from the story and how, how do you feel like it connects to the present? Yeah. yeah so I do want to tell everybody about that. A lot of people who read the book say that they love our author's notes at the end, like, that's right. what they love the book, you know, which is really, and it was my idea for us to write separate author's notes because Marie and I came to the project so differently. Marie, who had always wanted to do it, and me saying, what is this? This has nothing <laughs> to do with me. And then us coming together. And I always tell people, we finished our first draft right at the end of 2019. And I adored Marie at that time. I just adored her. Like, I would, in, I would have sent her Christmas cards if I ever mailed out any. I really, really liked her. And then we had to get to the editing part. And that's when you really roll up your sleeves. And we were working on that from like the middle of May till they gave us to the beginning of, of September. Uh, to the beginning of September. But so in the middle of May, so now we're in the middle of the pandemic, you know, we don't even know what's going on, but at least we have Zoom. And now we have to sit down together, which was kind of good because before we were always on the telephone, always running here to there. So it was good to just sit down. We committed to three hours a day. And then the George Floyd situation happened. Right. And then the marching. And then the Central Park incident happened. And there's no way you can have a Black woman and a white woman talking every day, every day face-to-face for three hours a day for the whole summer and not have it change you. When you're writing a book about race and race is exploding around you. And it was, I I don't even, you know, when you say something like the best time of your life doesn't even encapsulate everything that it was. Um, Two, I had never, and I think Marie would say the same thing, talked about race so deeply before. Because with my Black friends, we don't really, we talk about what happened to us. We don't, we talk about the microaggression of the day. We don't get into anything deep. It's just, do you know that she was telling me to not put my bag up in first class because, you know, she assumed I was going to coach, you know, something like that. And then with my (laughs) white friends, I don't bring it up because it's heavy. It's heavy if you're going to really go deep. So the deepest discussions I've ever had about race were with Marie. Mm. And, and it was such a gift at such a horrible time, such a gift to be talking about why did Genevieve do what she did? Mm-hmm. And so we could read about her being run out of town Mm-hmm. And, and being told she was going to be lynched. But then we could see what happened to George Floyd and we could say, this is what Genevieve did not want to happen to her children. When we saw that, I said to Marie, if you don't have any idea why she did it, if she came back right now, 100 years later, she would say, see, I never wanted my children to end up on the wrong side of a cop's knee. And so it was just such a blessing and such a gift 
that we could talk about two sides, you know, both sides. And Marie always says she looks at the world so differently now um, through my eyes. But talking to her was a gift to me too, because I used to say, I don't understand how everybody doesn't see all this racism. But <laughs> But most of most racism happens in, in microaggressions. Right. Most racism happens when I do get on a plane and someone and I stop to put my bag up and a flight attendant says, oh, no, this is just for people in first class. With the assumption that there's no way you'd be sitting there. Like, <laughs> no, this is my seat. And so what people see is a flight attendant saying something like that. Now, oh, that's no big deal. She just thought it. But they don't know that I've already had five other things like that happen to me um, right. on my way to the airport. And so if I say some, if I blow up, then I look like an angry Black woman. And so I, what I discovered talking to Marie is that you don't see the little thing. There's no way for you to see the little things. And so we just learned so much. And what we hope to do now is every book that we write together, it would be so amazing if Black book clubs and white book clubs and, and Black people who get their books from the library and white people get their books from the library come together and to discuss the books. Oh. Come together so that you, because even as Marie and I were writing, you see the differences. Like one of the big things I told Marie in the beginning mm -hmm. was Belle wasn't afraid of being outed by a white person. She was afraid of being outed by a black person because black people know black people. White mm -hmm. people don't. And so Marie was shocked at that. And it's, it was so good, the talks that we can have. And even mm -hmm. the book, so that's our goal with this book and with every book that we're writing, because we have a whole bunch coming <laughs> together. So excited about this. It's always going to be trying to challenge readers to find a reader who doesn't look like them mm -hmm. and discuss Oh, what a great challenge. Yeah, I, I belong to um, a very large women's organization, Delta Sigma Theta uh, sorority, and there's 350,000 of us around the world. And when our next book comes out, which I'll talk about whenever you ask me, I'm challenging <laughs> them. And, I, you know, because each there's 900 chapters and each chapter they do, they have a book club, um, among all the other things that we do. And I'm going to challenge them to find a white book club to discuss it with. And, and then Marie and I will come and talk. And I just think it's going to be really cool. I think that's mm -hmm. our way of bringing the world together through these great stories of real people that we'll, we're giving it to you as fiction. So because a lot of people will not read a biography but we're giving it to you as fiction so that you can come together and in a safe space, discuss race. Oh, that's so fantastic. So Victoria, what are you and <laughs> what are you and Marie thinking of next? Yes, it's due in a couple of weeks. So pray for me so that I can get, 
you know, I, 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 I told you, Marie is like right on it. And I'm like, deadline, they don't really mean it. Um, but it's really interesting. We're working on a book right now called The First Ladies. And it is the friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt okay. and Mary McLeod Bethune, who was the first African-American woman to be given a cabinet position in okay. an administration. And Mary McLeod Bethune is very, very, very well known in the Black community. Um, and, but what's so interesting is that everything you think you know about Eleanor Roosevelt, everything you think you know about Mary, you don't know anything. These two women, she, we wanted to write this because Marie is such an ally. I feel like she's such an ally who wants to do whatever she can. And now that she loves me, she's like, you better not mess with Victoria. Because anybody who messes with Victoria is going to have to deal with Marie. And so, and she's such an ally. And I like to look at Eleanor Roosevelt as the first ally. She and Mary McLeod Bethune were really good friends at a time when it was looked down upon. Mm -hmm. And Eleanor would do things like this. She would invite um, Mary to a restaurant that didn't take Black people, it was segregated. Black people couldn't eat there. But they weren't going to tell the first lady, no. <laughs> then she would sit in the front of the restaurant, right in the window. Well, they certainly didn't want to do that because a Black woman and a white, but they didn't want to tell the first lady, no, they couldn't. Then she would call the paparazzi to come and take pictures so it would be okay to the newspaper the next day. Isn't that great? Oh. That's what Eleanor Roosevelt would do. And the, together, the two of them have did things that, that FDR gets credit for, and it was the two of them. And so we can't wait to show that. But they had to have, we don't have records of this, but they had to have some serious conversations about race. Because especially once they became friends, yeah. and one of Mary McLeod's biggest things was to get an anti-lynching bill passed, and FDR wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Well, and we're going to give him his reasons. He didn't. He said, "I want to be reelected, and the Southern Democrats will never reelect me if I do this." And there's a line um, that we have in the book where he says, I can't care about 90 men a year. I've got to go for the greater good. Uh, and so when he says that, he says that to Walter White, who's the head of the NAACP at the time. I, you know, Mary and Eleanor had to talk about it. And they have some uncomfortable conversations about race. And we put that in there on purpose. Yeah hoping that when black book clubs and white book clubs come together, that we put conversations in there where Mary had to correct Eleanor, but we have just as many conversations in there where Eleanor has to correct Mary. Uh, and I think because everything isn't about race, even though we get so trained to think uh -huh. it is, but it's not. And so that could be part of the problem too. We're so excited about this book. I love the personal librarian, but that's because it opened the door. This book, 
the first ladies is going to open discussions that I think are going to be amazing. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Oh, and you'll have to come back and talk to me about it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Oh, so earlier you said, um, you said, well, we're going to have to talk about Bernard later. Ah. Um, and so, so I kind of want to know what, what you want to share about Bernard. <laughs> that, so Bernard was the love of her life. Yeah. And to, to um, in case people haven't read, I don't want to give away too much, but even if you just Googled, you'll find this out. Um, they had an affair that was condoned by his wife. Uh, that his wife was like, girl, y'all go ahead. And even when like, they got mad at each other, she would send um, Bell letters saying, please forgive him. He's sorry. He, he misses you. I'm like, what world is this? But it, that was so interesting and all true. What was so interesting was that she was introduced to him when she was 10 years old through a book that was given to her by a father. True. She met him through J.P. Morgan. True. And I think the reason she was so into him was because, because he wasn't much of a looker. Well, he looked a lot better than J.P. Morgan. But, uh, <laughs> but he was a brilliant man. For his time, he was the authority on Italian Renaissance art. Mm -hmm. And he, I think he made love to her intellectually first. And I think he was her first. We know that is true. And the intellectual stimulation. That's why I don't think, even though he was the biggest scoundrel in the world, <laughs> uh, and they had the most dysfunctional relationships in the history of dysfunctional relationships. <laughs> Um, they, they just couldn't get it over each other. And, you know, most of this book is really true. And what I mean by that is the big beats of the book. Um, she was hired by J.P. Morgan, all of the art auctions, everything that she collected, her trips to Europe, everything is true. There's only one thing that we completely made up. And um, not to give it away, but you'll enjoy this. The last scene where she's in London and he doesn't show up again. And so she gets into a Rolls Royce. It had to be a Rolls Royce. And she, and she gets into a Rolls Royce and drives away with the exhaust in his face. And he's like, Belle, Belle. <laughs> well, we made that up because we were so tired of Bernard. We needed our own boy bye moment. We needed to say boy bye because you're mm -hmm. a nut. We don't like you. The truth of the matter is they were together until the day she died. She died before he did it. Oh, wow. They were totally together. And he really did love her. He just didn't know how to love. He had his own secrets. Everybody mm -hmm. in this book had secrets. Uh-huh. <laughs> instead of the personal librarian, it could have been called, you know, a family of secrets. Everybody <laughs> had secrets in this book. Mm -hmm. And some of them you found out and some of them you just kind of wondered. <laughs> you just kind of wondered, right? You just yeah. kind of wondered. Oh, wow. Um, I seen if I had another, another question. question from the audience. Okay. Um, 
So this one's kind of fun. Um, how was your dream Hollywood casting for Belle and for Morgan? You Is know there any chance we might see a screen treatment in the future? Yes. Actually, the book has been optioned to become a mini-series by Al Roker and Al Roker's Entertainment Company. Oh, and wow. what I love, what Marie and I love best about it, it's not going to be a two-hour movie. It's going to be, they want to do a mini-series. So like six hours, which I absolutely love because I have some of my other books have been turned into movies. Mm -hmm. And you know, when a book is turned into a movie, if a book is 300 pages, the, the screenplay can only be 90 pages because it's a page right. a minute. So they have to cut out two thirds of your book, you know? And then people are always saying, I hated the movie, it wasn't like the book. Well, they, have, <laughs> they didn't have a choice. You know, when you get rid of two thirds of it, it's not going to be the same. Right. But what he wants, what Al Roper wants to do is to make it a mini series, like six episodes. Oh. So six hours would be amazing. I mean, you could get almost everything in the book in there. Mm -hmm. So what's so interesting or difficult, I should say, for me, is it's hard for me to imagine uh, who would play the roles because I spent a whole year writing the book with Belle and mm -hmm. JP in my head. I can't replace them with people. Um, and one of the things I've learned from my other books being, because I've had four now made into movies for a lifetime, the people who they put in there were never people I would have even thought <laughs> So the people who do casting are way better at this than, than we are. That's why they're casting directors. So we need to just, you know... You we need to just uh, forget about it. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> oh, fun. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh. Yeah, that's really exciting. So, you know, it takes a while to get done, yeah. but I think by the end of this year, we'll be moving along with it. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. We had another question just come in. It says, yes. I know you're on a deadline. Yes. But have you read anything good recently? We'd oh love my to God. hear that's your book recommendations. Yes. Oh my goodness. I am a big reader, even when I'm on deadline. And one of the ways I read, and I'm going to tell you, I have a lot of books I just finished. Um, I, I walk in the morning because even on being on deadline, I got to get moving. And so yeah. I will listen to a book for an hour, but then I also have it on Kindle so that, cause it syncs. Yeah. And so whenever I can just sit down and read, even if it's for five minutes while waiting in line someplace, or I will read. But I just finished um, The Seven Husbands of Evan, Evelyn Hugo. Have you read that? I haven't yet. That one's on my list, though. Oh, so <laughs> good. Oh. oh, my God. Just finished that. Just finished it like two days ago. Then I um, read uh, The Yellow Wife last year. Did you read that? Mm -mm, I don't know that one. Oh, another historical fiction that is one of the best books I've read in the last five years. Good to know. It is, it is based on a real person, but she, uh, a woman who is called the Yellow Wife, who becomes the wife of a slave. He, she, he's a, a mass, I hate calling that, he's an enslaver. Um, okay. And he chooses the slave as his wife. Because he has a jail, so no one else will marry him. No, you know, respectable people will marry him. 
And it is the most brutal and beautiful book I've ever read. Isn't it, doesn't that sound strange? It does. Brutal, it is brutal. There were times when I, Stacey, I couldn't breathe. I remember thinking, I can't breathe. What I'm going to need to do is go to the last page. Because if I could go to the last page and know what happens, then I'll be able to breathe. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But it was brutal and beautiful. Um, Wonderful. What a, you know, what a great, what a great way to talk about literature and the fact that we can experience that brutality through the safety of a book. But then yes. also have that opportunity to, you know, share it with other people. It is so beautifully written. And, you know, a lot of people don't like the slave period pieces. And I'm not a big fan either. Um, and I can't remember the last time I read a slave period piece. But what I loved about this book was it was the first time I've ever read anything that made me think of my own ancestors. Ooh. No book has ever made me think of my own. Oh, wow. So the yellow white, and then, but those are the those are the two biggest ones that I've read recently that I promise you all everyone will enjoy. Totally different, you know, <laughs> different experiences, but both the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I think she's sold over a million copies of that book already, and um, then Yellow White, just both amazing books. How exciting. Oh, so we, this hour has flown by so it's incredibly an hour, fast. Right? I feel oh like, goodness. I feel like we need it. We just need like an extra hour. Yeah, I, didn't, I can't <laughs> believe it's an hour already. Wow. Um, are there any like final things you want to make sure that you share with our viewers? Okay. Well, thank you for supporting me with the personal librarian. I do write contemporary fiction, even though I'm going to be a historical fiction writer from now on. <laughs> But several years ago, Lifetime optioned my books called The Seven Deadly Sins. And what was so great, Stacey, is that they optioned them without them being written. Oh, um, that they were going to make them into movies. So I had to write the first three in order for them to, you know, option all seven. So the first two, Lust and Envy, appeared on Lifetime last year, but you may be able to get them on demand. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and on April 16th and on April 23rd, Wrath and Greed comes out on Lifetime. Oh, oh exciting. So we, kind of we actually had somebody su just submit a question. I read the okay. Seven Deadly Sins series and books and liked it and was especially a fan of Wrath. So I'm sure that person yes. was super excited that was coming out. Um, yes. And Wrath, of, of all of the four, Wrath is my favorite. Oh, fun. And so I got to be in Canada while they were filming. So that was cool because oh. when they did Lust and Envy, it was COVID. So, you know, they were, I mean, they still had a lot of COVID protocols on the set, but now of we course. can go in Canada and everything. So that was fun. They don't ask my opinion on anything, but one of the things that's so, which is fine because I write books and I wouldn't want them to tell me how to write my book. So I don't tell them how to do their movie. But um, one of the things that I found fascinating was that all the actors had read the book, even though it's, it goes away from the screenplay a lot. Um, one of the male actors told me he needed to know the fullness 
of the character be, because he doesn't get the fullness in the script. So how um, cool is that? So even though that two thirds of the book was gone, that he, actor had the whole picture. In the, there. And most so, of them have the whole picture. Isn't that cool? And I knew with Envy, one of the male actors called me and said, well, um, inboxed me and said, he had read Envy and now he was a fan for life. And I was thinking, wow, do they read? But now I got to <laughs> talk to them. Um, and the one in, in Wrath, um, he was saying that the reason he did it was because he wanted to know who was this guy. And you don't get it in 90 pages. You get it in the 300 pages. Oh, oh. I it's exciting. You know, exciting for that actor to be like, ooh, the author's here. Well, you know, it's really interesting because the uh, star of Greed, I'll never forget when she came over and she knew one of the um, executive producers already. And the executive producer introduced me and said, this is Victoria Christopher Murray. And she was, the executive producer was doing say, and she wrote and the star of the movie said, oh, I know who she is. She's the reason why we're all here. Oh, I know. But then you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. If I hadn't written a book. So oh. that, was cool. that was cool. So oh, it's a now totally I... different thing. Um, totally different kind of writing. But one of the best reviews I had with the personal librarian was somebody who I guess had read some of my other books um, from Booklist, I think it was. And he said, he was talking about Maria first and he said she writes about versatile women. And then he said, and Victoria Christopher Murray is the most versatile writer I have ever met. Oh, Are there wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That was pretty cool because I never wrote to genres before. So that was pretty cool. So if people read The Personal Librarian, then they look at rap, they'll be like, really? The same person wrote those books? Like, well, then uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to make us have another question then. Will you, will you talk a little bit about how you became Victoria Christopher Murray, the author? Like yeah. how, did, how did that happen? I wanted to write since I was a little girl. Seriously, I wrote my first masterpiece when I was seven. And a lot of people laugh like you and think you can't write a masterpiece when you're seven, but you can if you play. I was thinking, I was thinking, I bet it was fabulous. It was. <laughs> And you know how I know it was fabulous? Because I plagiarized. I wrote something called Betty and the Witch. And it was about a little girl who wore a red uniform to school and had a hood. She had three bears for brothers and three pigs for sisters. And next door were their best friends. And it was seven little people. And I remember, so there are things that I truly remember about that play. Like, I remember that. And then I remember my parents telling me that um, we needed to give it to my teacher. I remember my teacher reading it and saying the entire second grade was going to perform it as a play. I remember her telling me I could play any part I wanted because I wrote it. I remember a little bit of practicing and what's so funny is I don't remember the performance, but I remember afterwards being called out on the stage as the writer and everybody applauding me. And so what that experience did was empower me. You know, my gift, my teacher validated my gift. I didn't know that's what was going on, 
But I remember thinking, wow, I could play any part I want because I wrote it. So there was, I remember thinking like, I wasn't thinking this, but power in you being the, the creator. Yeah. And then all the applause that I got, and my parents were so proud. You know? <laughs> um, and that was, I remember they were so happy. And writing made everybody around me happy. And, I, and it, made, it was something I loved. Um, and that's where the seed was planted. But I didn't take a natural road there. I didn't just become a writer. Because as I was growing up, the only adjective I ever heard in front of the word writer was starving. And I wasn't interested in pursuing anything that had starvation attached to it. No. Not, not at all. So I ended up going to college and majoring in communication disorders. And then I went and got my graduate degree, my MBA from Stern in New York at New York University. But I never lost that dream to write. And my husband kept telling me, you know, you better write because one day you're going to be 80 years old and you're going to regret that you didn't do the one thing you've always wanted to do. And that was what turned me around and made me write because I did have that fear. I could imagine being 80 and saying, wow, now it's too late. And I was afraid of that. And I always tell people that I had a desire to write, but there was a resistance that was higher than my desire. And when my husband told me that, my desire became higher than my resistance. And that's the only time I think you can pursue anything you want to do, is your uh -huh. desire has to become higher than your resistance. So please so, express my, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, please express my thanks to your husband. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what happened. That's how I became a writer. And I self-published my first book in 1997. Um, it was picked up by Time Warner. So you know how long ago that was, because now they're called Grand Central, I think. But it was picked up by Time Warner in 2000. And then in 2003, I went to Time Simon & Schuster and all 28 other books have been with them. Oh, wow. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, it started when I was seven. So you two, I, I don't plagiarize anymore but that first one I was a pretty good plagiarizer because I just took everything I knew <laughs> but aren't th those are all in the public domain right <laughs> I didn't know I was plagiarizing I <laughs> thought it was my own story Betty and the Witch yeah exactly yeah oh wonderful well Victoria it has been a wonderful evening. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And I, I want to thank you. Oh, thank you so much for, for penciling us into your busy schedule, for joining us on this, this spring evening. Yes. Um, so check out Personal Librarian for from your local library, as well as Victoria Christopher Murphy's other books, both at yes. the library and the films on Lifetime. And we'll all be watching for the miniseries. Yes. So looking yes. forward to that. And, we'll be, and then we'll be back with um, the First Ladies that won't be out till next summer, but um, not no. this coming summer, 2023. But oh. we're excited about it. We're very excited about it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Stacy. This was a great conversation. Oh, it, pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. And have a wonderful evening, everyone.
That wraps up our Anoka County Library event with Victoria Christopher Murray. Make sure to catch our next Club Book Podcast with Julie Otsuka. Chart-topping novelist Julie Otsuka is the daughter of Japanese immigrants and a poignant chronicler of the Japanese-American experience. Japanese-American internment camps, a shameful and often overlooked chapter of World War II history, take center stage in Otsuka's latest novel, The Swimmers. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.